Forward Guidance is brought to you by Van Eck, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about a Van Eck ETF later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Very happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, David Kotok, co-founder and chief investment officer of Cumberland Advisors. David, great to see you. How are you doing? Well, it's nice to see you. Last time I saw you, we were fishing together in Maine, and we had a nice visit there. So it's so nice to be with you again. It's it's my pleasure, David. Uh, since we spoke, there was a little bit of a tumble in the bond market that uh, lasted until October, and then bonds uh, since then have been you know, rallying like crazy, if I can use that scientific word. So as someone who you know, manages a lot of bonds for, for, for your clients, what was that experience like? Well, you, you had, oh my gosh, you had an abrupt, huge shock in the bond market. We know that. Price adjustments on some bonds were in bond price terms, 15, 20, 25%. And you had a spike. We know the history. And then I think markets had a realization. Whoa, this is too much, too fast. And bonds are really cheap. We're not going to have 7 and 8 and 6% inflation for the next 20 years. And the Fed is not going to put the whole world in a tank and kill the economy. Maybe bonds become interesting. And even more, Jack, the tax-free municipal market reached levels at 5% tax-free for very high-quality tax-free bonds. Five. I remember one bond issue that we bought for clients that was a New York State housing authority bond issue at 5% tax-free. That's triple tax exempt, city, state, federal. The basket of collateral that secured that bond was the United States of America or one of its agencies or the cash reserve for the funding mechanism. Essentially riskless, 5% tax-free, New York, at the same time, the 30-year U.S. Treasury obligation was four in a small fraction. Now, I don't know about you, but I can do that math. A New Yorker would have to obtain 10% fully taxable, 9% fully taxable to match. Show me how you get it. With no risk, incredible, incredible, not long-lasting, because what happened, people like us and others jumped at that market. So it didn't last long, but it was there for a few weeks. And yeah, just to explain for the audience, so when a municipal bond is uh, triple tax-free, for, for a client who, you know, for the year has a, has a high income, a 5% can be something like, a, you tell me, a, a tax equivalent yield of what you said, 8%, 9%? Yeah, at the top federal bracket we know is 37. Depending on what state you're in, you have to add the state taxes. And in some jurisdictions, a city or municipal tax. In the case of New York City, you get all three. To, to have a grossed up taxable equivalent yield of between 9 and 
on a piece of paper that you could turn into cash in three days in an emergency. And the payment stream is secured not only by the pledge of the United States of America, but by a basket of mortgage collateral. And those mortgages are guaranteed by federal agencies and the housing authority maintains a cash reserve to protect the bondholder. My gosh, it's a gift. And it was a gift. <laughs> so what do you do when somebody hands you a gift? You take it. And we did. You, you take it and you say thank you and, and, you, and you smile. So, so well, yeah. uh, th thank you is a separate question. <laughs> Who you say thank you to is a separate question. In the bond market, municipal bond market, which is approximately $4 trillion in size, very segmented. And the range of its size could be as large as, say, the state of California or the state of New York. But at the same time, it might also be a small fire district that issues municipal debt once every 20 years to buy a fire truck. So you've got 90,000 different jurisdictions. So that market is not the same as the treasury market. And therefore, it can offer real advantages when it chooses to say, come take advantage of me. I'm <laughs> giving it away. And other times it can work the other way. But this was one of those moments. Mm, yeah, so and the municipal market... As an, as an asset class, it's not guaranteed. But if you do the work and you find the right bonds, you can be you know, very confident in your credit quality assessment. Uh, why do you think it is that the, the municipal bond market, there's opportunities to sort of beat the asset class and ge generate real alpha, whereas in, you know, in stocks, it, it, it's quite hard. Is it because of that fragmented nature that you said? Oh, sure. I, I think the fragmented nature of the market, as you just described, and how diverse it is, the players in the market tend to be mutual funds, and they are driven by flows in and out of the funds. So I can be a mutual fund manager of a, of a, a muni fund. And if I have redemptions on Tuesday, I have to sell a bond even if I don't want to. And if I have incoming flows... I have to spend that money. Otherwise, my competitor will, and my yield on my fund won't match hers or his. So the mutual fund drivers in that market, constrained by the way they're structured, the boutique investment advisory firms, which is what we are, we handle separate accounts. So you give us a few million of your extra money, and we put it in an immunity account for you. And you say, here's my state, here's my residency, here's my tax situation. And now we can cherry pick that market for you. That's what a boutique muni manager does. And there's a few of us in the business. We talk to each other, we, we understand. But the mechanism of the muni market is totally different than say the stock market. You wanna look at the stock market, you can trade Microsoft within one tick of the same price, 10,000 people can trade. That's a huge difference. Right. So the stock market is a lot more liquid. Is the municipal bond market 
even more illiquid than, say, the corporate bond market? Depends on the issuer. If you want a AAA state credit, like Maryland, by the way, state of Maryland has a higher credit rating by some of our credit rating agencies than the United States of America. <laughs> so uh, this whole notion that the sovereign federal debt is the highest quality credit rating is not true. I just gave you an example to disabuse anybody of that notion. If you buy the Maryland GL general obligation bond, there's a liquid market. Institutions who want a lengthened duration will go to it and they want to change their portfolio duration, they'll go to the big liquid names. That's how they trade. Boutiques are different. Boutiques have a way to get into cherry picking for clients. That's why we get paid. So you're doing a lot of the work on the credit analysis for municipal bond, but I imagine you, you do have a view on duration, whether you know interest rates go, go up or down. And of course, that has a lot to do with the federal. What is your outlook on the, the, the Federal Reserve's um, uh, future path of interest rates. And, and how about you map us from where we were when we were you know, sitting, sitting on the, the boats in, in August to where we are now? I wish you would rather ask about the fishing conditions. <laughs> However, we'll discuss that this coming summer. Yes. Yes. So where are we now? We know the Fed is in a holding pattern. We know the rate of inflation, the scare of the high single-digit number has subsided. We know the most recent estimates and indicators are that inflation variously measured. Remember, you can measure inflation 20 different ways. We look at the consumer price index because it's a headline. But as a practical matter, in, in the investment management business, you look at 20 different ways to see the inflation. What do we see? We see a trend. The trend is coming down. Is it 3%? Is it 3.2%? Is it 2.8%? Does it make a difference? The answer is it doesn't make a difference as long as that trend continues towards this more or less 2% target. Do we have to sit at 2% for a long period of time? Do we have to get under 2%? Maybe. But the fact is we're headed there. So the real question for the markets, and we saw that in the changes in future pricing of the Fed funds policy rate, is this game of when is the Fed going to make the first cut? Will it be May? Will it be March? What if they have to do it in September? And in a political year, do they want to do it before an election? And I would say we have consumed half of a forest in reams of paper on this discussion and how many millions of hours of media time among less thoughtful shows than yours discussing this game. For what? It says that many in our Business have nothing better to do. They should go fishing and learn how to fly. I'll teach you. You tell them, and maybe we'll improve the world. 
Well, if they're like me when it comes to fishing, they they have a lot to learn. Rather than make it a million and, and one hours, I'd, or a million and one uh, uh, reams of paper, I'll, I'll ask you, what have you learned of the previous rate hiking cycles, of which uh, there have been many, what is something that you want to pay paying attention to that maybe is overlooked? And maybe on the, uh, on the corollary, what is something that everyone is talking about and thinks is really important that it may be a little overrated? This doesn't matter as much. The most important issue is to take your focus on financial stability, the conditions of financial stability. I don't give a damn if the Fed funds rate is 25 basis points lower or higher, and if it happens in May versus March versus June. It's nearly irrelevant. What is relevant is this Federal Reserve has demonstrated its commitment to financial stability, and it has done so in the face of, in my opinion, adversity. And it proved itself in Silicon Valley bank failure. And we talked about it up in Maine afterwards and subsequently. And what has the Fed essentially done? It said we're not going to permit a meltdown contagion in the banking system. End of story. That's our job. When the Fed was created in 100 years ago, what brought it about? financial instability, the 1907 banking panic. J.P. Morgan said, enough is enough. We need a central bank. We can't have this anymore. And so I think the key for financial markets and for the investment community is to grasp that financial stability and the commitment to it went up. And look at credit spreads right now today. As we're speaking, they are tightening. We have shooting war in two regions of the world. We have an expanding shooting war on global shipping and transit. We have one of the three major routes of global trade shut down. Suez Canal, we have the second one operating at 50% of capacity, Panama, because of low water. I only hope nothing goes wrong in the Straits of Malacca, or we will have hit all three. Who would have ever said, I'm looking at a scenario where 45% of Europe's ship traffic has to now go around Africa? I'm looking at the transit of the Panama Canal cut in half. I'm looking at rising maritime rates, rising maritime insurance, higher worldwide shipping costs, stress on all this transportation. And the credit spreads for America are narrowing. Why? Financial stability. Financial stability. So when you, when you, Examine this and you say, why aren't the credit spreads wider? What are the markets saying? These are real money betters, corporate debt, all kinds of debt, all kinds of issuance worldwide. 
because the confidence in financial stability of the United States and its system among the players who make the real money bets, not the pundits who are busy talking on television or radio or sending disinformation in social media. The real money betters say, I have confidence in the financial stability structure because of the Federal Reserve. It sure as hell is not because of a few members of Congress who don't know how to get a budget and who threaten debt ceiling defaults. Tell us about this financial stability. You know, I imagine financial stability was at a very low time and, and during 2008. <laughs> and likewise, during March 2020, the Federal Reserve did a, a lot of enacted a lot of programs in order to improve financial stability. Why was it, do you think, that it took only one program that has you know, less than $200 billion of uptake, a massive amount of money, no doubt, but you know, it, not, not the trillions of, of March 2020 or, or 2008, in terms of the bank funding program? I mean, have you been impressed by how little the Fed has had to do to restore financial stability? Well, I, I think the action of the Fed, the bank funding program was important, no question. But I don't think that's the cutting edge. I think the cutting edge is Silicon Valley Bank. What did the bank, what did the Federal Reserve do? It has, it, it faced a contagion threat. Imagine what would have happened to three or 400 companies if their deposits had failed. They would have all filed bankruptcy the next day. They would have had to lay off their staff. What would everybody in America do? take their money out of the bank. It would have been a run on banks. So what did the Fed have to deal with? First of all, start with the FDIC. It has a hundred billion credit line at the US Treasury. What was the Treasury doing? Running down its cash balance, bumping up against a debt ceiling, not getting authorization to expand the debt ceiling. And therefore the Congress had put the Treasury in a position where it couldn't sell cash management bills mm -hmm. to fund the FDIC. So what did the Fed do? It said to the FDIC, you seize Silicon Valley Bank. We have a way to fund a federal agency. You're a federal agency. Once you seize Silicon Valley Bank, we can then finance you, lend to you directly as a federal agency, you will happen to be the receiver to a failing bank at the same time. What was the mechanism? This was the first it ever happened. So there had to be a few hours of finding the mechanism and markets were terrified in March in those few hours. What happened? The FDIC seized the bank. They then said, we seized the bank, we need the funding, the Fed said, We'll give it to you, but it takes Treasury to sign off. So you needed three parties to do it. It took six hours. I assure you, the next time it'll take six seconds <laughs> because we avoided a contagion. How did we avoid a contagion? The creative application of the tools of the Central Bank of the United States. No fanfare. No headline discussion. Just do it and keep the system stable. And they did. I believe that's the reason, not the bank funding. Uh, 
couple hundred billion, important mm -hmm. stuff. But I believe it was the intervention and was not a 13.3 emergency lending provision. It's a very special structure that the Fed used. Would the Fed like not to be in this position? Of course, they would like people to behave themselves. The human being doesn't always do that. So the Fed extended a credit line to the, the FDIC so it could calm things down. Yes, and the Fed has the capability of doing that to any federal agency. And what are the provisions? You're a federal agency. That means you are the United States of America. We'll fund you because you don't have the cash. You promise to pay us back and put in motion the system to do it. What did the FDIC do? Raised the fees on deposits, immediately started that program, and immediately started repayment of the loan from the Federal Reserve. Taxpayers didn't lose a dime. And all accounts, including uninsured accounts over $250,000, were able to get their money immediately instead of being issued a special dividend and stuff like that. Correct. And what we have what we have done is created a, a mechanism which says in America we are implied, not specifically articulated, but we have implied that large depositors will be insured. We have now been through a system that says you can depend on the banking system. At the same time, the shareholders of Silicon Valley Bank have not completed the penalties they will incur and the management will incur for their behavior. So Fed policy supervision is tighter than it's ever been. And there's a reason. There's a debate over whether Silicon Valley supervision was adequate. There are two schools of thought. Number one, it was in the size of banks where there was a law change in 2018. So the definition of systemically important banks was changed. What, what happened to Silicon Valley Bank? It grew from 70 billion to 200 billion in a straight line in a matter of a couple of years. How do you do that? You and I could run that bank and we'd say, all we got to do is pay a little more than everybody else on deposits. Now, what do we got to do with the deposit money? Well, we got to put it in the security. Well, let's go buy long-term securities because we'll get 2 or 3% yield, but we'll be able to cover the deposit. We'll make the deal. And what did the supervisor say? You can't do that. You're mismatching maturities. You're getting your liability asset out of line. Well, if that bank had been $251 billion in size, it would have been supervised not permitted to do that. Mm. But it was it. So that explains the game. Game is over. No <laughs> banks, banks don't dare jeopardize their mismatch in maturities after Silicon Valley Bank. They'll have the wrath of this regulator on their heads. Yes. And it certainly helps now that interest rates are you know much more likely to decline than continue to, to go up. And that's an incentive for the Fed to move slowly so that the change is more sustainable. So Fed mm -hmm. policy, I believe, is patient. We see it in the rhetoric, but I'm a believer that one should not go by what they say. The presidents and the governors and the releases. Words are important, 
but look at what they do, not what they say. And if you look at what they do, they are committed to financial stability, have been and continue to be. That's very bullish for the United States, for our financial markets. Very bullish. I wouldn't want to compare other places in the world and say that one's better. Yeah, you want to be angry at American politicians. You want to make a big fuss and you want to say, oh, no, we're not better. We're least worst. Okay, as you wish. Forward Guidance is brought to you by Van Eck. The Van Eck Morningstar Wide Moat ETF, ticker MOAT, has outperformed the S&P 500 for over a decade. How? Moat strives to achieve a simple but challenging task. Buy quality stocks when they're undervalued and sell them when they're overvalued. Visit vanek.com slash moatfg to learn more. That's vanek.com slash moatfg. Now the disclosures. All investing is subject to risk, including the possible loss of money you invest. Visit vanek.com to carefully read a prospectus before investing. The Vanek Morningstar Wide Moat ETF is distributed by Vanek Securities Corporation, a wholly owned subsidiary of Vanek Associates Corporation. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Oh, that's a great uh, transition. We talked about the Federal Reserve, but it's my understanding you you recently made a trip to a country not too far away from the the U.S. and you had some um, correspondence with central bankers there, and that was with the Global Interdependence Center, which is a nonpartisan network for policymakers, central bankers, uh, economists, and the like. I'm I'm very you know lucky and proud to say that that I am a member. So tell us where did you go and what did you learn on on your recent recent trip. Our delegation, we were 16 people. We went to Cuba. This is the third time that um, I either chaired or co-chaired a delegation to Cuba. We um, did it in 2019. Um, We did it again last year and most recently a week ago. And our visit to Cuba was a real eye-opener now for... For me, this is a visit to a country which is on the designated terrorist sanction list. Trump put Cuba on the list six days before he left office, six days after the events on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. There was not a single Cuban. There was an imposition of a designation of sanctions in the final couple days by the State Department under Pompeo. And there's a real curiosity as to why. Meanwhile, Biden originally said he would lift those sanctions, but he hasn't. They have made some small changes. And so the Cubans have been under very intense sanctions. What I wanted to see as a nonpartisan, neutral person is how they were dealing with them. And our delegation was able to actually have a meeting in the central bank in Havana. And we also had a meeting with people in the foreign ministry. More importantly, or as important, I should say, because when you meet with officials, they say to you what you would expect them to. Mm. But the Cubans permitted us to meet with anybody we wanted to in the country. And we probably met 50 different individual entrepreneurs because Cuba has changed policy. It used to be until very recently, recently meaning months, that Cuba government said to its population, 
here's what you can do as an independent business. And you had to go get permission, go to a bureaucrat. Now we have a different circumstance. The Cuban law changed. And Cubans changed the law in a way in which it said, we will not ask you to ask us what business you can go into. We will tell you what is prohibited and you can do everything else. You can't touch the medical system. That's prohibited. You can't touch the education system. That's prohibited. I had a vice minister say these very words to me. But if you want to have a business and it's not on the prohibited list, you can do it, which means you can have a restaurant, you can run an Airbnb, you can develop a computer company, you can have a messaging services. I, I spoke with Cuban entrepreneurs. They are now expanding business all over the world, except the United States. What do you see? You see Canadians, you see Europeans, and you see some Asians, you see some Russians. My own view is all the Cubans I spoke with, and that's probably 50 different people who are involved in this element in various places in the country. All the Cubans I spoke to would prefer to deal with the United States. They are not our enemies. Now, I don't know about the top of the government. I don't talk to the president of Cuba and he doesn't talk to me. But the citizens that we met with, the other thing that was most impressive is the U.S. dollar is the most popular currency in Cuba. And the government lets it happen. I don't believe I transacted one time in Cuban pesos. My entire six days and all of the bills that I paid were in U.S. dollars, in cash, in denominations, which might have been as little as five or even one or a hundred dollar bill. That is the preferred currency in Cuba. So we, to me, and my takeaway from this trip is the sanctions are now hurting Americans. We already hurt the Cubans badly. We're the ones who don't get to seize opportunities. I looked at a brand new resort being built. It's built by a Spanish company. I looked at an operation that was a Canadian operation. I saw a crane in the air putting up a new structure on the coast, on the ocean, in Havana. Fabulous. It's not us. It's not, it's not Marriott. It's not a Hilton. It's not our business. We're missing a massive opportunity in a very fertile place with people, I think, who want to do business and work with us. Very interesting that uh, they use dollars. So having met with the central bank of officials of the central bank of, of Cuba, what does their monetary policy look like? You know, with the Federal Reserve, Obviously, the U.S. It runs a dollar system, and it's kind of a global dollar system. So the Fed has its balance sheet. It has special programs they can do. It has different interest rates, but they all, you know, all sort of are in a, a narrow band. What are the various tools available to the, the uh, Cuban central bankers, and what are their priorities? Well, they have access to payment systems, but not SWIFT. 
They don't. They have no U.S. dollar payment system. The way U.S. dollars are transacted are cash. They also have an adaptation of an exchange electronic mechanism among currencies. So if a remittance of U.S. dollars by a Cuban family to their relatives in Cuba from Miami, for example, is transferred, it ends up as a dollar entry on a debit card. And the, the dollar is converted to an equivalent peso number. So there's an exchange rate. Well, that becomes a whole complicated system because in Cuba now there's an official exchange rate. There's an unofficial exchange rate, which is the hotel exchange rate, which is nearly double. And there's a black market exchange rate. So we have three exchange rates between dollars and Cuban pesos, which creates a crazy system. There is an inflation in Cuba. It's very, very difficult for poor people in Cuba. The government doesn't have the ability, the financial ability to raise subsidies. So what are they doing? They are being forced to change prices. Think about this country. It is raising the price of gasoline. It is raising the price of electricity, not because it wants to. This is a long time communist subsidy driven country. It has to, it has no choice. However, entrepreneurs are very busy because they now, I think the Cuban government has probably realized they won't say it, but they probably realize we need the private sector to make things function here. Because if it's up to the government, it doesn't function. And I saw it with my own eyes many, many times. If, if U.S. policy altered to encourage that, it would flourish. And the people in Cuba are not our enemies. We, we, could, we could improve policy, in my opinion. I'm not a diplomat. I'm a businessman. To me, there's an opportunity. Hey, everyone. We're about to get back in the action. But before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year in the heart of London, we're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high-frequency traders. They'll all be converging at Digital Asset Summit London, the mother of all digitally focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty gritty of real world assets. So think stable coins and on-chain treasuries. It's all in mix. I'm going to be there and so are the forward guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated Forward Guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG10 to get 10% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode, so gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. It's very interesting. And what did you learn about inflation and how inflation can be caused by being in Cuba? Because 
it obviously has supply side issues of not being able to get goods from America and, and, and maybe other places, but it also has uh, maybe some, some monetary, some demand uh, uh, driven forces as well. So, you know, in America, when there was inflation and it was you know, close to 10% uh, a year and a half ago, depending on people's ideology, they said it was 100% driven by supply or 100% driven by demand. Maybe it's a little bit of, of both, but what did you see in, in Cuba that told you about what might, how that might break up and, and you know, might it, your learnings there apply to the U.S.? The system is so different from ours because if you look at America's system or other G, G7 countries, our monetary system is a credit-based system. You tighten the credit somehow, you slow things down. You use the credit mechanism and its multiplier somehow, you speed things up. If you do do it too fast or too much, you trigger inflation. If you tighten it too much, you reduce inflation, even bring about deflation, but you slow the economy. We're a credit-based system. In Cuba, we don't have a credit-based system internally. Monetary policy in Cuba can't operate with a credit multiplier. There is no credit multiplier. And I think the monetary authority in Cuba, the Cuban Central Bank, is dealing with a different set of constraints. I'm not going to say I feel sorry for them. They brought part of it on themselves. But the monetary authority has to deal with the finance ministry. It's not an independent central bank. And it has to look at prices. So what happens 150,000 barrels a day of oil from Venezuela has become 50,000. Cubans don't have enough gasoline. They have a bunch of cars in a line waiting to buy us gasoline at a subsidized price, which is below the cost to produce and refine the gallon of gasoline or the liter of gasoline. So they've got a mess. They are finally allowing that price to rise to get to a market clearing level. What does that do when you remove subsidies from people who have been getting them for a long time? You create political instability. And that's what's going on in Cuba. The negative side is very hard for people who are in Cuba. That's why half a million, 500,000 Cubans in the last few years have left Cuba if they could get out. I also spoke with people who can't get out. They have professional qualifications such that they cannot leave. And they're in tough spots. I spoke with a man who spent six years in medical school, three more years in specialty training, and three years in a clinic, 12 years a sharp, young, articulate doctor. And he, he's not practicing medicine. He gave all his research, get everything back to the government. He said, I can't do this. His wife is also a physician. What's he doing? He has some English language skills. He's got some training. He's helping manage a small hotel. An accomplished medical profession. There are lots of them. There are lots of stories like that in Cuba. Will the Cuban government change and allow that to flourish? That's up to them. I don't know. 
can the United States alter its policy to encourage those changes? Yes, absolutely yes. The more Americans like our group who talk people to people, Jack, with Cubans in Cuba, the more we make friends and everybody wins. It sounds like the amount of skilled workers in Cuba is much greater than the ability of the economy to take advantage of that skilled labor. I think so. And what do we have? We have a system that requires education. We, in our group, we had medical professionals, we had a lawyer, we had uh, financial professionals, we had a mix in education. Our takeaway was This is a country that requires everybody to have an education. This is a literate country with opportunity based upon knowledge. Now, is there an orientation in a system that is rigid, requires education, and controls the educational message? Yes, but every single Cuban has a device and gets receives the news from the United States every day. It's I ask Cubans, I say, how do you how do you make it here? How do you get along? And the answer is always the same, no matter who you ask. Whether it's the vice minister of the central bank, she's a wonderful woman, and I've met her before. She recognized us for private visits, and she was very candid with us. And when we asked about certain things like their use of MIR, the Russian payment system. Mm. She said, that is something we won't talk about. She didn't want to tell us 2% or 3% of the transactions or what they do. She said, yes, we use it. And we use other payment systems. And we went through them and how they clear Canadian dollar and Euro. They have are forced to have an amalgam clearing system, and they are forced to do so for only one reason. They cannot clear U.S. dollar. If we changed that, lifted that sanction, in a minute, they would be dollar-based, in my opinion. Now, if you ask a Cuban diplomat, would that happen? They won't answer you. But my opinion, they want to do business with us and they want to trade, and they tasted the opening up, and they liked it. And there's a possibility of change, but it'll be up to the United States to see if it wants to encourage it or not. Thanks for sharing that and you know, what, what you saw on, on your trip. Going back to, sorry, David, you want to say something? Well, I was just going to add one thing. Mm-hmm. It's easy to put on a sanction. It's hard to remove them. There's an asymmetry in sanctions. Some of the sanctions on Cuba go back to Jesse Helms when he was a senator and Helms Burton and are 60 years old. Now, on this trip, I visited the Bay of Pigs. Mm. Wow. I went to the Bay of Pigs Museum. I met with a man who was 83 years old. And when he was a teenager in the Bay of Pigs battle, his house was bombed. And he joined the militia to fight the invaders. He's 83. I'm going to be 81. The two of us had a wonderful conversation. At the end of the conversation, 
we said, why can't the world stop hating each other? And we gave each other a hook. Will I ever see him again? Probably not. Did we, do we, are we enemies? No. We have a, we both have grandchildren. He probably has more than I have. So, you know, why? And the ace of these types of actions doesn't get explored enough. You put them on. Oh, we're going to show those guys. Now, how do you create sequential incentives and take them off? How do you reward the positive if you get the change? Cuba says we'll permit entrepreneurs, make it easier, lift some sanctions. We'll permit more entrepreneurs, lift some sanctions. Make gradation shifts because it is not a symmetrical system. That would be my advice for anybody who'd be willing to listen to it. I'm I'm curious, you know, b- back in the day, Russia and Cuba had a, a very positive alliance because they, they were both communists. Now Russia, you're not no longer a communist. Are they they so are they still in touch, however? Uh, very much in touch. Okay. I, I was in one place where I saw the price of a beer in dollars, one one dollar for a, a water, bottle of water was one dollar. And the second price was written in Russian, but the price was one euro. So it's interesting. Only two prices are posted for a bottle of water, English and Russian. And the price was not in rubles. It was in euro. Cubans don't want rubles. Mm-hmm. I had a sense, too, with the Chinese, because there's a lot of controversy about the Chinese have a listening post, they're doing this and that with the Cubans. Number one, we didn't see very many. That doesn't mean they're not there. It means we didn't see them. The conversations that I had with Cubans was that when the Chinese come, they make they bring their own workers, they create their own community, and they don't mix. And the Cubans don't like that. They're very mm. social people. I don't see a lot of welcome wagon for the Russians or the Chinese. But what I do see is if the United States doesn't open up incentives we put the Cubans in a position where they have no other choice because they have to have something. They have to have a payment system. They have to have relations somehow. And they can't have them with us because of the sanctions. David, what's your view on China? You know, Throughout your career, China has gone, the economy and their market system has gone through immense changes. There was a time, maybe three years ago, when the remarkable growth in the Chinese economy was accompanied by a, a very you know, uh, a substantial increase in uh, investment returns in real estate, but also in the stock market. That is no longer true as we record this in, in early January 2024. And China appears to be on the brink of some sort of financial crisis. And you know the various Chinese stock indices are where they were in you know the late 1990s. So what what is your overall view of of what's going on there, and uh, you know whether things might get better in, with China? Well, I don't know. I mean, we have tension with China. We know that. We see them in bailouts in their banking system, in their financial markets, in their stock markets. We also see a military buildup, which is worrisome. Um, How the policy initiative is maintained and evolved on the U.S. side is unclear. And so when you don't have a clear message, 
in world power relationships, you invite bad actors. That's my worry about China. I don't think China wants to go to war with the United States. Mm -hmm. And the United States doesn't want to go to war with China. I don't have any scenario probability with confidence in where this evolves over some period of time. And I worry about the Chinese markets as a market agent. I wouldn't. There are much better places to be in the world. So that's... That's about all there is to say about China. And the stock market's lower than it was it was last week, so they were right. So as the Chinese market has continued to fall, the U.S. stock market, as I'm sure you noticed, is, is on fire. What have you made of this rally now that the S&P 500 is at, at all-time highs? Is it you know, justified by fundamentals and you think it may continue, or do you have a few uh, concerns? I have concerns. Um, if I didn't, I'd be a professional idiot. Note, notice I paused. Mm-hmm. So you look at the equity risk premium, you look at the interest rates, that's what I do. You measure equity risk premium in a number of ways. And you say, okay, the market doesn't look cheap. What does it take to justify this? It takes earnings, they have to grow, they have to compound. How do you get earnings to grow and compound? You want to have enough financial stability to keep credit spreads tight, to enable finance, because in the United States, our financial services enterprises and financial system is the fundamental backbone. And right now we have it. If we succeed in a very low inflation, meaning 2%, 1.5%, 2.5%, 3%, but low single digit, and we persist in financial stability projection, American financial stability worldwide. Why couldn't the S&P 500 index be 8,000 at the end of this decade? Why can't the S&P 500 earnings be $350 for a year? It's quite possible. It's not a crazy number if you don't have a recession and you don't have a shock and you avoid a meltdown or contagion. Now, are there problems? Of course there are problems. Is the debt too high? Of course it's too high. By the way, I would challenge anyone to look at the history of the United States and go all the way back 150 years and find somebody who said, the debt is too low, we should raise the debt. And compare the number of people who said it to the people who said the debt is too high, we have to pay it down. We never pay down debt. We roll it. This political notion of our children will have to pay it back. Come on. Nobody's children has ever paid back any debt. Not in any D7 country anywhere in the world. And it's not going to happen because it's so painful to do. So I'm, I'm a relative optimist, Jack. I'm an old man, but I'm an optimistic old man. That's a, a good way to be. Um, you know, in the there's a saying: bulls make money, bears make money, I and mean, pigs get slaughtered. But I mean, the the stock market tends to go up over time, so I think it's the bulls that make the money, not the bears. I agree with you. It's been that case. I don't see a reason why it doesn't change. And so you said that you know, why not S and P five five hundred at eight thousand by the end of the decade, provided there's no recession. I might uh, propose to you a, a similar claim that provided that 
uh, U.S. spending continues to grow at 5% and inflation is 2 or 3%, you know, real spending is growing at 2% a year, provided that the unemployment rate you know, remains below 4%, I, you know, I struggle for there to be a recession. Some people call what happened in early 2022 a recession because inflation was so high. But if it was, it was the only recession in history where the unemployment rate was, you know, below 4% and continued to, to decline. Um, so what do you think about the, the U.S. economy where, you know, you have some things that look phenomenal, like the labor market, like spending, you have other things that look less good, or even in some cases, bad. So what, what do you think? And how do you sort of think about this? Well, my biggest worry is we have a COVID shock where we lost over a million people to death. And we have a long COVID shock of about seven or eight million who have real serious disabilities from COVID. And the whole country's decided COVID's over. It isn't. I'm recovering from a positive test that I had three days ago. So COVID isn't over. What are we not focused on? Look at the job openings. And more importantly, in this fight over border and immigration, and the border is a mess, and the immigration services are overwhelmed, but the Congress doesn't fund what's needed to not have them overwhelmed. They would rather have the political issue and point at it. So that's a vicious cycle. But if you look at the job openings and then you look around in the employment situation and say, I want to, I want to look at the worker in the back, not the smiling face at the front of the counter. Who's, who's in the back? Who's invisible but accomplishing work? And where are we going to get the ability from our existing population to fill those positions? Why are our medical services short? Hundreds of thousands of people in various job descriptions. The healthcare system is 17% of the GDP of the United States, and it is shorthanded. Where does the shorthandedness appear? Sure, you say, oh, we don't have enough neurosurgeons. Yeah, but if we had another 25 neurosurgeons, we'd have enough. How about the people who have to help the old or sick or hospital or clean the hospital or service it or push the bed around between a procedure and the recovery room. How about the staffing? My fear is too much border. We're not letting anybody in the country. We're going to kick them all out. Makes the employment acute shortage areas worse. And turn it around. When we were up in Maine together, we did a session in which we said, what if we allowed the 9 million job openings to be filled tomorrow by immigrants, not criminals, people who want to come here, want to work, and who want to come with their families. And we admitted 20 million. You remember that exercise. Okay. What would we have? We would add those people in their 20s to the labor force. They would pay taxes. What would happen to the funding of federal programs? What would happen to the Social Security Trust Fund if you added five or six or eight million young people paying into it? 
change the mix. So uh, my fear is the political backlash will be so harsh that we will pay a penalty on staffing and employment for years and years. We have, what, 800,000 dreamers, 900,000 dreamers. That has been the case for years. They work here. They live here. They are in all intents and purposes fully Americanized as you and I and others like us are. Why don't we close that issue? Why do we have still have to be debating it? And why do they have to live in fear of a knock on the door to send them somewhere tomorrow? It's a bad policy. Yeah, well, I, I like how you separated the economic argument from the political argument. You know, I try and avoid politics on my show, but just speaking purely on an economic sense, I mean, yes, having people who are age 20 bring their families here and and working and paying taxes and getting, you know, that is pro- probably be, be good for the American economy. And, you know, one advantage America has over Europe, over China, over over Japan is, I'm not going to say our demographics are good, but they're certainly a lot better than Japan. I mean, Japan has a declining population. China's demographics are, are very, very bad. Well, let's take the politics aside, but let's stop the hater politics. Yeah. Let's stop the hater politics and say, okay, is it good for the United States to have a few million more people come and work here? And pay taxes here and do so legally. I'm not advocating breaking the law. I'm advocating let's try to find the within the law system and make it work. If we didn't have 9 million job openings, it would be a different story. But there's no threat to an American job. We don't have enough people in the United States to fill the existing open positions in all kinds of disciplines. That says you either have a shortage situation or you fix it. And to fix the shortage situation by saying, well, those are American jobs. If they are, why aren't there Americans in them? And do you think that the shortage of workers for certain jobs, was that an issue chronic to America before 2020 and COVID? And it just got exacerbated by by 2020 stimulus and and COVID? Or do you think that sort of 2020 caused the the shortage? No, I I would say it got exacerbated, but in a very big way. Because Mm. for two years, we had a decline in life expectancy. Two successive years in the United States. And we had a decline in working age population that was able, willing, and accepted a job. And we see it in the employment statistics. We see it in the employment population ratios, all these fancy economic tools that we use. The bottom line is we didn't have enough capable people. And we still don't. Today, we don't have enough. And what are we doing? We're making it harder to We make it harder to come here, and then we create a whole bunch of bureaucratic rules to make exceptions to try to fill the the holes where we don't have enough people who have a specific skill. So we create a bureaucracy to do that. It's madness. How do you think the election 
this year in 2024 is going to impact the Federal Reserve's interest rate policy? My hope and wish and guess is hope, wish, and a guess. Hope, wish, guess. Right. So all three align to the Fed doing what it believes as a policymaking body is slowly adjusting the interest rate and doing so to have a sustainable, low inflation, low single digit pathway. That's its job. And maintain financial stability no matter what. No shocks, no contagion. That's their job. I would add there is a debate over at what level do you scale back or stop QT. That is a big issue. There's lots of uh, opinions. I have one. Line up 100 economists, you'll have 101 opinions. There's no question that shrinking the size of the balance sheet is underway, has been underway, and is broadcast as a continuing. The second less discussed issue is the composition of the balance sheet. Now, we're into some technical areas. When you talk, when I talk and use the word duration, you know what I mean. But eyes glaze over. Ask somebody, you talk to on the street and say, can you give me the calculation for Macaulay's duration calculation? And they won't even speak to you. So, (laughs) But I know what it means. And David, a lot of the audience, I'm I'm proud to say, does know what duration means. I'm ashamed to say can't give you the the formula for for Macaulay's duration. But I do know duration is exposure to interest rates. The longer duration a a bond is, the more it will increase in value as interest rates decline. So you defined it well. So it's a price sensitivity to a change in interest rates. But if you now have to apply it to a large multi-billion dollar portfolio, which holds 80,000 different securities. That becomes a very nuanced process. And at the same time, you're trying to shrink that portfolio, shrink it down. You have all the dealers saying, don't forget, we need treasury bills for repo collateral because we got a little bit of money sitting in repo. What's the repo balance today? How many trillion, Jack? Right? So... You have to balance collateral needs, liquidity needs, and shrinking a portfolio, which means you may want to go shrink this sleeve, but you don't want to shock the market. So you take the second choice to reduce the portfolio. A very nuanced arrangement. My reference is this survey data of the lowest confidence level of reserves. So what does that really mean in plain English? The Fed asks the banks and it says, what level of reserves would you be comfortable with that is your lowest level of reserve absent a shock? Because if you have a shock, you want as much as you can get. So absence of shock. So the banker looks around and says, geez, my reserve balance I need is a thousand but I need a cushion. So when I'm all done, I'll tell the Fed 1,200. I'll add 20%. Another banker says, I'll add 18%. Another banker says, I want 25%. So what does the Fed do? It looks at the whole banking system 
And it says, okay, the lowest comfortable level of reserves for the entire system is X. We can't shrink below that. We also have to permit the treasury to operate so it has to have a bank balance. We're the bank agent. So I think you total those up. My guess is QT has maybe one year left, maybe a little less. The Fed starts to scale. They won't just stop it abruptly. That's been the way they phased it in. That's the way they'll phase it out. And that's coming this year. Once that starts, markets will then adjust to the size of the balance sheet and the benefit of too big a balance sheet, whatever that number is, comes to a halt. Right now, we're still in the beneficial period. It's lovely, but it doesn't have a lot of longer to run. Very interesting. So there's two ways to think about the balance sheet. One, the most important thing is the level. The second is the rate of change. So now the U.S., uh, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is large and ample, but it, day by day it is getting less ample, so it is shrinking. The one school of thought would say because the Federal's balance sheet uh, is shrinking, that is a liquidity uh, a withdrawing mechanism, whereas it sounds like the other framework, which sounds like uh, you aligns with your thinking, is that the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is still big and, and the absolute level matters too. I think so. All of the above. And, and the relevant issue is if you have a million dollars on the balance sheet and it's a million dollar 30-year U.S. Treasury bond or you have a million dollar U.S. Treasury 90-day bill, the balance sheet size is the same. Look at the duration difference. And that duration is either in the market or it's on your balance sheet. So every time you move it around, you are impacting duration in the marketplace, as well as your own balance sheet. And the Fed has to juggle duration because it's got to meet liquidity needs and repo too. David, you know, as, you, as you know, anytime there's a market move up or down, there are at least five possible explanations for why that, that security moved in, in a certain way. And the cross-asset rally that began on November 1st, a lot of folks attribute that to the uh, quarterly re- refunding announcement from the U.S. Treasury basically saying that they would fund themselves by issuing, I believe, more bills, so more short-term treasuries than longer-term treasuries than the market had, had expected. Do you, do you agree with that analysis? How, how big of a factor do you think it is? You know, Congress is the, chooses whether we have a deficit, or, uh, a big deficit or a small deficit, or in some cases, a surplus, although you know, that's uh, not very common. And then Treasury chooses how to fund itself. And I ask because I believe next week the Treasury issues another quarterly refunding announcement. So what's your outlook on that? Uh, number one, I'm like you. Let's see what they say. N- number two, what we find is if they do what they say and there's a shock in the market, they immediately change. I'm not so upset about what the policy will be. There, there will be an attempt at a statement. This statement will outline what we now know in the business and ha- see it as a routine activity. Again, I remember the nightly news when I was young. You could tell whether or not there was a good news day because if they had a slow news day, you you had the report of a warehouse on fire somewhere. Now, no one remembered 
the last report of the last warehouse fire. You could have replayed the video of the old fire. This is our game, Jack. We, but we all know that when we gather together in Maine, we laugh at this game, even though we're all players in it. I'm not worried about the Treasury studies. And I don't see the Treasury or the Fed. They are truly, as officially, independent of each other. But they are in collaborative work every single day. They are both agencies of the United States of America. And they are not about to deliver a shock to a system if they can avoid it. End of story. I'm in the financial stability camp case no one's noticed and you're still listening to us. You're in the case of financial stability. So if there is an exogenous shock to the system, it sounds like you think it will be from the economy, not the financial system itself. Or we have shooting wars in two regions. That is a whole difference. I'm more worried about the expansion of war and the bad behaviors of bad actors than the market seemed to worry about. I am overweight aerospace defense four times market weight. I wish it were different. Why? Look at the world. I'm more concerned about war and the spread of war. And in war, accidents happen. And they trigger ripple effects. And behaviors are extraordinary. Iran, when, when do you, when would you have ever expected that somebody would come on your show and say, Iran is going to fire a missile at Pakistan, at a target in Pakistan, violate the Pakistani airspace with a high-powered weapon? If I'd have predicted that on your show a month ago, you would have said, gee, interesting, Kotak. You would have we would have said goodbye nicely. You would say he's a nut. No, no. <laughs> oh, come on. So what did we just see? We just saw that. What else did we see? We saw a response. What else did we see? We saw India. India say, we're siding with Iran. India siding with Iran. Really? Why? Pakistan's the natural enemy. So you, you say now. Did cooler heads seem to prevail so Iran and Pakistan resumed diplomatic conversation after recalling ambassadors? Huff and puff, both sides realized this is a bad, we don't want to go down this rat hole. Rabbit hole. Rat hole. Maybe both. Okay? So I worry about scenarios where people shoot modern weapons and they do destructive harm. And in the United States case, we have bad actors firing high-powered, very, very well-crafted missiles at a warship of our country. And now what do we know? We know some of those missile guidance systems came from North Korea. This is a very dangerous world. And it's unclear how goods are going to, you know... Be transported around the world. I mean, I think the the cost for insurance in the the Suez Canal went up what sixty times. Oh my gosh, it's it's a straight, it's a vertical line that's rising every day. 
on that you know, somber note, we'll, we'll leave it. David, thanks so much for being so kind with your, your generous insights. Fascinating st- stories from, from Cuba. People should check out the Global Interdependence Center if they want to learn more. People can find you on Twitter at David Kotak, G-I-C, and uh, your firm Cumberland Advisors at Cumber.com. David, thanks again, and thanks everyone for watching. Nice to be with you, Jack. Thank you. Thanks for watching. Remember to check out vanek.com slash motefg to learn more about the Vanek Morningstar Wide Moat ETF, ticker MOAT. Lastly, Forward Guidance is available not just on YouTube, but on all podcast apps. And a video version is available on Spotify and Twitter, where I post interviews regularly. Thanks again. Until next time.